Welcome to the Herbert Kane Podcast. I'm Simon Osimo, and as a former UK police detective, black and British living in America, and raised in a single-parent mixed-race family, I've seen the power of stories transform people's lives, helping them find fulfillment and purpose, and I want to share these journeys with you. So each week, I interview people that have found a balance, have a positive mindset, or have found their purpose in life to encourage you to be the best version of yourself at home and in business. Now, on today's show, I'm joined by Fee Murray. We are talking forgiveness, purpose and new directions and how she is making a change to everyone's safety in the UK, creating Martin's Law, requiring an increase in security at open venues. Now, tragically, on May 22nd, 2017, an Islamic extremist suicide bomber walked into the Manchester Arena in England and killed 22 people. Now, tragically, Fegan's son Martin was attending the concert that day and was one of the people killed. But since that time, she has refused to be a victim and has made it her mission to change a broken system through the passing of Martin's Law designed to increase security at open public venues. But she's also received criticism when she publicly forgave the suicide bomber that killed her son. And now she spends her days traveling around the UK and the world talking about radicalization. And I know you'll find this an incredibly moving and powerful story. But before we dive into today's content, if you are a fulfillment seeker, please head over to Facebook, go to groups, search Who I Became Podcast Fulfillment Seekers and join our growing community for more engaging conversation. Now, without further ado, let's dive straight into this week's episode with Fegan Murray. Well, Fegan Murray, welcome to the Herbert Kane podcast. Hi, and thank you for inviting me. I'm really pleased to be on your show. Well, Fegan, I know we're going to be talking about quite a deep um, subject today, but there is so much growth and transformation in your own life. And I know my listeners are going to get so much from this conversation. So I'm really appreciative of you taking the time to talk to me. And I'll just lay the foundation and I'll give you the opportunity to tell my listeners as to who you are. So I'll talk a little bit about sort of pre-May of 2017. You're a mother, a wife, a life coach with a passion for helping people get back on track. And tragically, there was a terrorist incident in Manchester, England on the 22nd of May, around 10.30 in the evening when an Islamic suicide bomber went into Manchester Arena during an Onda Grandi concert, and he killed 22 people, injured over 1,000, 112 hospitalized and sadly, one of those people that killed was your your son. So um, there are not many words that I can say to you. So I'm really honoured and privileged and grateful for you coming on my show to tell me a little bit about your personal journey to help honour your on your son. So maybe, Fegan, start off by just telling us a little bit about what your son Martin, that was tragically killed in that terror attack, was like. What what type of a what type of a man was he? Well, you only need to go on YouTube and go and, and and on Google and Instagram and check him out. He was absolutely life embracing. I think uh, he was full of the joy of life. Um, he squeezed everything out of life. He um, he was kind, compassionate. Always looked out for the underdog. Always um, did a kind thing to other people as much as he could to his friends. You know, he'd. Um, he was just an incredible life force, really. Um, 
had a wicked sense of humor, really good sense of humor. I was quite often the butt of his jokes, but in a loving, kind way. Um, he meant it very nicely. So yeah, he he had many, many friends. And uh, it's only after his death that we realize just how impactful he has been, not just on people he knew, but people he didn't know personally who were just following him on social media. And uh, we got, I on my phone alone, um, got over 2000 messages from all over the world, from people who were following him and saying how much he'd helped them without even knowing them, you know, just by following on him on social media, really. Wow. So he left a long legacy after his passing. And some of the comments that you mentioned, and, and now I did some, did some sort of research about you before and some of the projects that you're involved in, I can see where he gets a lot of his grit, determination um, and humour from. So it's, um, uh, thank you for sharing that uh, with us about what your son was, was like. And uh, one of the things I want to talk about it so we're talking you know um, pre-2017 of this terror attack in mm -hmm. manchester you know you were a life coach and your life has trans you know your life has changed beyond all recognition not only losing your son but some of uh, the endeavors and the projects that you're in but one of the things that you perhaps um get criticized for is that you publicly came out and sort of forgave the terrorists so i think mm -hmm. there's most probably a lot of people might challenge that and say, well, how can you do that? What I like to sort of understand from your perspective, because for me, getting to know you through your social media, is quite easy to understand, but you're a very compassionate, forgiving person. What was that process like to come to the point where a young man has walked into an arena, has caused so much injury and harm and devastation to other people's lives to be in a position where you can forgive them for taking someone that is sort of so close and near and dear to you? Yeah, so obviously when the attack happened, we didn't have the news on at all because it was all about the attack and it was just too de-stressing to watch. So, uh, but somebody kept buying the newspapers and putting them, piling them on the dining room table. And about three days after the attack, I happened to go past the newspaper and I saw the, a photo of the, the attacker on the front page and I completely froze because... I realized how young he was. He was only about 22, 23. And I was horrified that somebody so young would do such an, an awful thing, throw their own life away and that of other people's. And then a week or two passed and about just under three weeks after the Manchester Arena attack, I found myself on my own for the first time uh, because all my relatives had left uh, back to their own homes and my husband went back to work, my kids went back to school and college and uni. And I was on my own for the first time that morning. And I, so I nipped across to the shops, bought a newspaper, sat down with a cup of tea, noticed on the front page there was a picture and I didn't know what it was about, but it was a picture of five men linking arms, protecting a man on the floor. And I thought, oh, that's curious. What is it about? And then I realized when I read it, it was a... Um, a terrorist attack on a mosque in London, the Finsbury Mosque. And it was basically a right-wing extremist who hired a van trying to kill Muslims when they come out from prayer. And what happened was the van stopped and the perpetrator tried to run away and uh, stumbled over something and fell. Obviously, the people from the mosque were chasing him. They were angry and tried to harm him. And these five men, one of them was the imam and the other four were people from the mosque who'd been in the mosque praying. 
in all that chaos and confusion, they decided to form a human chain and protect the guy on the floor, although he'd harmed them. That picture, together with three weeks prior to that, or two and a half weeks prior to that, of the terrorist, of the Manchester Arena attack, then I put both those pictures together in my head. I, I thought all day that day, and by the time my husband came home that evening, I said to him, I this is what happened, this is what I've read and I've observed today, and I've made a decision that I actually have a choice, like these five men had a choice to respond. Uh, they did what humanely was the right thing to do, and I've decided to go on public, uh, on national TV, publicly forgive the guy. And he said, why would you want to do that? And I said, because I need to stay within my own humanity. This is who I am in essence. And I can't bring Martin back by hating and being bitter and angry, but I could maybe do some good by publicly forgiving him. And in any way, I need to do it for me, for my own sanity, my own humanity, my own way of being. The essence of me is normally a forgiving person and I need to stay true to that. And that was the main reason I forgave. But I also forgave because two wrongs don't make it right. Um, me hating is what terrorists would like to happen. I didn't want to give the terrorist that satisfaction. But more importantly, hating somebody who killed my son wouldn't bring my son back and it doesn't solve the problem. It just creates more bitterness. And those are the reasons, the main reasons why I decided to do that. Yeah, and I think if I've got this right, believe I have, the offender was 22 years old. So the world will see a 22-year-old Islamic terrorist, you know, who went in with a suicide vest on to a public arena, you know, with the intent to cause harm and, and take life. I guess, what do you see, Fegan, in that young 22-year-old? I saw a young man who probably walked over the glass bridge he walked over to enter that room where he did the explosion. And when he walked over that bridge with his heavy rucksack on his back, determined to do what he wanted to carry out, I am sure in his head he thought he's absolutely doing the right thing for his cause. And I see a young man who, who, who was brainwashed, who was educated into thinking that, because my belief is that, you know, when we are born, nobody on this earth is born as a terrorist. Something happens to some people in life and turns them into terrorists. You know, it's the ideology. And uh, that is my firm belief. Yeah, and that's, that's great um, insight. It really is. And I think one of the other things, and maybe this is a maybe a bias or a stereotype in my own mind, I don't know. You can you know, please let me know if it is uh, vegan, but... You know, no parent ever wants to bury their child. That's just not something that any parent ever, you know, wants to do in life. It's, it's just, you know, it goes against human human nature. But I guess by your circumstances, you don't, you didn't just, we didn't just become a parent who had lost their son or daughter. Yours was also killed in a, an internationally incident of terrorism. So when you get sort of thrust into that public limelight, you're grieving. I know you're a life coach. You might have had some experience around sort of, you know, goals, brokenness, and sort of trying to create milestones. But um, how did you grieve in the public eye and at the same time sort of grieve privately? What did that look like for you, that journey? Yeah, I've not just been criticised publicly for forgiving the terrorists. I've also been criticised for not looking like a grieving mother publicly. 
uh, because I don't cry publicly. I do my crying privately. Uh, my grieving is actually very private. And it's it's a choice. Obviously, what happened was very public. We have been thrust in the public eye. But I now, um, as far as I'm concerned, doing a job in Martin's memory, in Martin's name. Um, I am trying to, obviously, I'm no longer a life coach. I wasn't just a life coach. I was actually a psychotherapist for 23 years. Okay. I had a successful private practice and I just stopped working because I just simply can't offer people therapy any longer because I don't want to do them an injustice. Because if somebody came with a minor issue that is really very important to them, due to what happened to me, I don't think I could give them the compassion and empathy that they deserve. And the ethical, the most ethical stance for me, the, the only action really I could have done is step down from my job. Um, however, I feel it is really important that I do everything else I do since Martin died. And the public grieving, people may see me as somebody who is maybe very um, reserved and very in control of her emotions. That is my public face um, that I present because I go into professional mode. Privately, it's very different. I've had lots of therapy. Everybody in the family had lots of therapy. And actually, my therapy training has enabled me to present myself publicly in a very calm and collected way and I don't don't disintegrate publicly so yeah well and what's interesting point. is you know I know me and you spoke off line about this and you know I served in the police for a long time in England and you know, saw a lot of weird and wonderful and crazy things but I guess I'd never really taken notice of this until someone I interviewed actually told this to me but he had actually murdered someone when he was a teenager and he said that he realized that day there was more than one victim. And I guess that is the same in your circumstance, that there are the, the family members could be of the of the offender who might not have been pro what he did. I'm sure there's some people in his family that didn't agree with what he did. And then there's the victims that lost their lives. And then there's the family members of those victims as well. Yeah. So there's there's a whole sort of um a larger population that get affected by yeah. these, not, I guess we're talking about an act of terrorism, but just by crime in, crime in general. But I really get the feel from you publicly. I don't know you that well um, privately, but you never really, you would be classed as a victim, but you don't really come across to me as that victim mentality. Your mentality is, yeah. what do we learn from this? How do mm -hmm. I move forward and how do I change the good of society? So where does that resilience come from? But most importantly, I do not see myself as a victim. Martin died and um, I can't bring him back, no matter how much I grieve or cry or shout and get angry, I can't bring him back and it's not con constructive. And Martin was so life embracing. I think he would be horrified if I disintegrated. I, the best way I can honor his death is by being the strongest person I possibly can be and try and do as much positive stuff as I possibly can do. And you're absolutely right. Uh, when an attack like that happens, uh, the, the people who die and get injured are not the only victims. Uh, obviously, he came from um, an ethnic minority background, and I'm sure that a lot of people in that same background were at the time victimized by, by the general public and they suffered and they haven't done anything wrong, you know. So there are many, many losers in this game of terrorism, unfortunately. And where do you think your resilience comes from then? Where, where does your sort of 
grit, determination, and sort of mindset. Um, is that something that you had sort of post May 2017, or have you always been this way? Where where would you say that comes from? Um, I think mainly because of my training from uh, becoming a therapist and life coach. I think you you just learn to become a fairly resilient and strong person. But actually, it's probably my personal makeup. Um, I've always been as a child very determined and um, always set goals for myself. I think that's that's helped me a lot. But my my main resilience comes from I am now more than ever Martin's mum. He's gone, but I can carry on um, in his name. You know, to to get something good out of something bad, I can sort of try and create something good out of something so sinister. I do it in memory of him, and the, and not just him. For all the victims who died alongside him, really, it it what happened was so devastating. But we cannot let these people have died for nothing. And if I go into that dark victim place, Martin will have died for nothing. I can't let that happen. I know one of the things that you do now is that you do um, sort of workshops in schools and run sort of groups about trying to understand radicalization and how do we sort of influence our kids in a more sort of positive way to try and sort of remove remove hate so i think you know if someone googles your name it's going to come up actually even him in the us i mean google is an algorithm but i just typed in vegan murray and in the us google your name popped up with all your stuff down there so you can people can see all the good work but but you do so you now have a strong purpose and presence in that in that arena and we'll talk about sort of martin's law in a, in a few moments but so the interesting piece for me is that you have found your purpose in something which came about as being a very tragic event in your life you know we all ask ourselves what is my purpose what is the meaning of life what is it that i should be doing but you found yours in something which is came at the sort of the life of your your son have you ever sort of reflected on what that means i don't know if you believe in creator a higher power what it means but do you do you reflect on why yeah. did it always come about so i may say something that might be difficult for some of your listeners to hear as a concept i'm not religious at all but i can't consider myself a spiritual and i believe uh, rightly or wrongly that I, I think from the moment we are born our life is predetermined that is just my belief and um, people have said to me, Martin was just at the wrong place at the wrong time. And I'm thinking, well, maybe he was just exactly where he needed to be. Maybe it was his time to go. Maybe it was his time to go for me to, for the meaning for me to find me, my, my you know, when you said earlier, the purpose. I wasn't looking for a new purpose. I had a purpose as a therapist and coach. I was quite happily doing that. I felt that was my purpose to help people through therapy and coaching. And when Martin died, a different purpose has found me, actually. So I'm carrying out what comes very instinctively now. I don't want other people to go through what I have gone through and my family has experienced. I want young people, because the perpetrator was so young, I felt that it's really important to address young people because young people are, after all, the future adults. They are also the people who have the ability to make our world a better world by the way they see things and the way they 
question things and I go to schools to offer them that opportunity to have a different view. So I two weeks ago, I managed to get to the 10,000 children point. Um, I was at a, the, the first time since lockdowns, I was allowed to go physically into a school and in that one week saw 560 children, which brought the number of children in total since Martin died to 10,000. So, but I have every intention to go to many, many more schools to talk to many more young people, because I think it really is important they recognize that they have a choice how to live their lives, how to see difference, not to fear difference, but see difference as an enrichment into their own life, that they only need to be concerned about one human race, and that's humankind. And if you turn the word humankind the other way around, it becomes kind human. And I, I encourage them all to be kind people. I usually take a, a gift box with me to schools and I always tell the teachers to give each child a pen and paper, a small piece of paper. And before I leave the session, I always say to the children, I want every one of you to write one act of kindness you're committed to do on that piece of paper and put it in the gift box. And when the children have left the room, I give the gift box to the teachers and say, there you are, there's a whole box of kindness. Do some sensible project with it and make it meaningful. And often schools will send me photos of projects they've done with them, and which is really good. So um, I encourage young people to be kind and teach their future generations good values and wow, I mean, there's, there's so much in there that you just said, Fegan, a couple of things that come to mind. I don't know who said this, but they say in a world where you can be anything, you know, be kind. And I, I mm -hmm. sometimes say that to my two two sons, um, and, and it is so important and having role models, positive role models, such as yourself, they can go in and talk to, to youth and, and share part of your journey. Incredible. And I think the other thing that resonated to me from what you just said was also about sometimes your purpose finds you. We mm -hmm. often ask inwardly what is my purpose and how do i find my purpose but sometimes by circumstance our purpose um does find us as well so i'm um, fascinated would yeah. you have ever um imagined that you'd go into schools and you would have touched so many lives because if you look at the multiplication effect that one classroom you talk to they could have brothers or sisters that they tell would you would you have ever imagined in a million years vegan that you would have um no. touched so many children I mean, I, I also talk to grown-ups. I go to police and counter-terrorism conferences. I go to security exhibitions internationally. I've talked at the European Parliament. And I'm laughing because, would you believe it, actually, until Martin died, I was an, an acute introvert. I had a... I don't believe practice. it. I don't believe Seriously. it. But if you say it, yeah. I worked from home. I saw my... I had a private practice. I saw my clients on a one-to-one -one basis in my basement. I had a treatment room and I had a little classroom where I teach um, different skills to small groups of five, six people. And uh, that was... That did me just fine. I, I don't like big crowds normally. I don't like parties or weddings and anything where there's a big amount of people that used to be a nightmare for me because I was so socially awkward. I didn't know how to do small talk. It was really uncomfortable. When Martin died, that completely changed. I'm quite happy to do live interviews on TV. I don't rehearse them. Uh, I'm not bothered about what questions I'm being asked. You know, people say to me, will you come to the European Parliament? 
yeah, no problem. You know, I am quite comfortable talking to five, six hundred people at any given time. And I don't know how it happened, but somehow, as I said, the purpose found me and I'm going with it. Yeah, and I'm a, you know, I, I am a person of faith, so I, I do believe, but it is nice to hear that you're spiritual. And um, one thing that I've learned in my life is that I do generally believe that there is, our lives are predetermined. People that we meet and things that happen, and we don't always understand the why, you know, well, yeah. well why did it have to happen this way? And part of life is we're, we're not supposed to. And I think when you try to, not maybe not overanalyze, but when you try to really get in the weeds, that yeah. clarity is never going to come. And all it really does is it just eats you alive. It's like, okay, what do I learn from this situation? Even how I met you from mm-hmm. Chris Patel from Tales to Inspire. You know, I mean, that was, you know, I met him, then got connected to you. So it is, it is interesting how life can put us in these situations where you might have been an introvert before, but you can become an extrovert and you've got the strength, the energy, the resilience, the compassion and empathy to try and help help others. So uh, fascinating, fascinating stuff. And so maybe tell us a little bit about then Martin's Law. So you've mentioned the European Parliament. I know you've been to, uh, you know, you've been on national news and I'm sure international news and these various different things. Tell us about what you're trying to do through through Martin's Law. What's your latest project? Yeah, so Martin's Law, I initiated because the thing is, uh, when Martin died, obviously we didn't go anywhere. I stayed at home for months and months. And then about a year and a half after he died, um, we were given some tickets for a very small uh, music concert of a female singer that my husband likes. So I took a very tiny handbag with me to make the bag searches at the venue easy because I made the assumption very foolishly made the assumption that since the Manchester Arena attack, security is going to be absolutely paramount at every event we go. And to my shock and horror, we walked into the event. Nobody even checked our tickets, never mind bugs. There was no search, no security, no nothing. We just walked in. There were staff there talking to each other, but nobody checked. So when I sat down, I was very, very upset about that. I actually cried. My husband said, are you crying because the song is so sad? And I said, no, I'm (laughs) crying because of that. I'm crying because of the lack of security. I'm shocked. And I chewed over it for two, three weeks. And then I decided, that's it. I'm going to have to do something about it. So I started an online petition. And that eventually, it got lots of signatures. And eventually, two other people, significant people joined me who actually have impact Uh, One of them had connections to the government. The other one was a high-ranking counter-terrorism person. And those two guys joined me and supported me. And it's now gone to Parliament. Uh, The government is now on board with it. And it's basically Martin's Law is asking the government to put in mandatory um, security measures uh, at any big public venues like arenas, big restaurants, big cafes, cinemas all those places where places of worship where people gather i want them to put security in and it doesn't have to be expensive security it's all very proportionate but i want them to be um, held accountable if something happens and they have not got security so that is a law that's being discussed in parliament there's a public consultation until the 2nd of july then the government will evaluate the results and eventually formulate some some legal document. So it will become a law. 
most likely later on in this year or early next year. Well, and all that from a life coach who is an introvert. I see. Yeah, yeah. And that's incredible to do that, to take a, a tragic incident to become so positive and make something so good out of it, which is going to carry on your son's memory, but also protect other people's. That's an incredible thing, Fegan. So very, very proud of you for, for, for doing that. And I guess, you know, there's, there's I believe, the 2017 um, incident was the largest one after the 2005, the 77 bombers. So, I mean, what, what has given you hope for all this time? So, I mean, 2005, you know, there was the London bombings, 2017, your son in, in Manchester and 21 others. You've been pursuing Martin's Law now. We're sort of four years yeah. later. Where, where does that hope come from, that there was going to be hope for change? Well, it's, things have to change. Obviously, security is a big thing. And the arena, the Manchester arena attack is currently holding a big, big public inquiry where they're finding out what went wrong. So a lot of uh, things will hopefully, as a result of the inquiry, be rectified. And Martin's Law has been thoroughly discussed at the inquiry. So the judge who is going to be make, making recommendations is issuing a, a report on security and safety in June, and that will hopefully contain Martin's Law as one of the big recommendations to the government um, to just reinforce what the government is already doing about Martin's Law. I'm going to pick up on a short sentence that you said there. You said mm -hmm. there has to be change. Yeah. And, and, and that is, and I guess... Is, is it okay that, you know, you are the, the, not the lone soldier, but you are the person that took that mantle and said, I'm going to make change? Do, do you believe that someone has to make a stand and someone has to fight and, fight and push? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I, I, that, that's, that trip to the concert that we went to shocked me to the core because I could not believe that after 22 people lost their life, a lot of them were children that nothing had changed, you know, I, I just could not accept that. And I really, uh, it, it, what dawned on me also is that we go to all these places, we go for meals, we go to football matches, we go to gigs and, and all these events, thinking, assuming we are safe. And actually in reality, that wasn't the case. And the public just doesn't have any idea of their own safety, they assume they're safe. And I just want the government to really make sure that they, they put that law in place so that no other family goes through what our family and the other 21 families are going through. Because, you know, when somebody gets killed in a terrorist attack, it is life changing for the rest of the family. It's completely my, my life has no resemblance to before. I, I am 60 now and Martin would actually laugh his head off. If he saw all the stuff I'm doing, I'm now really hopeless with this technology, but I'm constantly on Twitter several times a day talking about all things to do with uh, peace and uh, tolerance to talking about terrorism and, and how to avoid it. And I, you know, I would talk about right wing extremism and, and all sorts of terrorism related stuff. That's not that wasn't me who I was before. I'm, I'm a different person. You know, he would laugh at the amount of um, social media activity I actually do now. Well, there's a lot of savvy, I mean, you say he's 60 years old, but there's a lot of savvy people um, on your generation and now about technology. I'm, 
I'm 20 odd years behind you. And, and sometimes I'm saying to my sons, can you help me out here? You know, I, <laughs> I feel like I should get technology, but I don't, you know, it's like, hmm. I've got a good friend who always laughs at me about that. But it's, it's interesting about the, something you, you sort of said about, you know, people assume that they're safe. And from my hmm. time in the police and afterwards being a safety consultant, it's really challenging because people aren't as safe as they believe that they are. Yeah. Yeah. But the problem is, Fegan, is if we open their minds up to too much reality, the world becomes too dark. Um, and yeah. so it's telling them enough so they're aware, but not mm -hmm. scaring the, you know, the, the, yeah. the stuff out of them so they're walking in. So I guess I'd have to ask you this sort of the, the question. And I know I'm going to ask you this, a challenging one, because but I know you're, you're doing your master's degree, you're hanging around with politicians and counterterrorism leaders, so you know more than me. But yeah. I guess as a... A woman that's lived through a tragedy that your son has been killed by a terrorist, where mm -hmm. most people would say, well, lock him up or, you know, castrate him, whatever it is. What do you believe is the answer about radicalization and just sort of terrorism in general? And I know that's a, that's a six-week question, Fegan, but you've got, you've got a few I've minutes. But just, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just tell, tell me what your sort of um, yeah. elevator thing is about what do we do? Yeah. The answer is education, training. It honestly is. Uh, I think it's educating the professionals more, educating the public more, educating children more about it. Unfortunately, times have changed. Um, ter the terrorist methodology has changed since 2014. 2014, unfortunately, was the turning point where lone actors have become more, more dominant in terrorist attacks. We see more um, suicide attacks um, of the nature of what happened in Manchester. People use knives, they use machetes, they use vehicles, they do all sorts of things. So the general public is actually very blind to it. And I hear what you're saying that we need to not scare people, but there's got to be a balance. We also need to be realistic that actually terrorists can strike anywhere. Uh, the, the recent pandemic has made it even worse because whilst the, the whole world started baking banana breads and doing jigsaws, unfortunately, terrorist recruiters have used the pandemic as a brilliant opportunity to get more fresh blood on, on board. They have been really busy radicalizing because they know that lots and lots of young people are online during the pandemic. We don't even know at this stage the impact of that in terms of future attacks. Um, that will only be surfacing in three, four, five, six years' time when these youngsters who are being radicalized are adults. But in the meantime, I mean, as you said, I'm doing a master's in counterterrorism now. It's, it's another thing I didn't think I ever would do at the age of 60. <laughs> But um, my dissertation, I'm actually on my final piece now, and I'm doing an... an um, my, my dissertation is in, called Investigating the Capacity of Martin's Law to Save Lives Through Social Attitude Change. And I am talking in my dissertation about opening the public's eye to the dangers of terrorism so that they are more aware on the, of their security. So, for instance, I had a discussion with a friend of mine this morning about my dissertation, and she said, well, what are you trying to achieve? And I said, well, when I go to a street cafe now, before I sit down, I look around me to see if there are boulders, if there's if a car could easily mount the pavement and run me over. It's just something I now automatically do. 
um, not because I'm fearing terrorists, but because I am more aware of my safety. And it's just literally similar to, you know, we used to have a time when um, we didn't wear seatbelts, but there was campaign after campaign. And eventually now everybody wears seatbelts or should do. And that's not to, to, to um, frighten the public. It's basically saying if you wear seatbelts and you are in a car crash, you have a better chance of surviving. And this is no similar. I'm talking about gradually introducing the public to becoming more aware of their own safety. And, and that's all this is about. It's educating the public. Um, and, and, and that's many folds, not be that security and safety to also the dangers of radicalization, training people to recognize how to see the signs, be that teachers, fellow students themselves, parents, anybody should know the signs of radicalization and then know where to go to get help. So it's all about education and training. Yeah, and I would agree because one of the things that I did um, in reading in preparation for this was to read the report. But the report was criticizing MI, um, MI5 about um, reacting slowly to information about the radicalization of the offender in this case and in other instances as well. And having worked in the public service in the UK, I have to defend MI5 and MI6 and any other sort of investigative agencies to a degree because there is so much going on out there that you can't yeah. monitor anyone. I mean, there's what, yeah. 60 million people now in the, in the UK. So I think it, it's a bit harsh to, uh, and we have it here in the US where I reside now. The first thing we do is we blame the federal government for not putting yeah. controls mm-hmm. in place to counter us. Well, it's not solely their responsibility. You can't yeah. monitor 400,000 people that are clearly, you know, um, radicalized or, or are saying the yeah. wrong, wrong thing. So yeah. it, it is a challenge. I mean, would you sort of echo that opinion or do you have a different sort of I opinion totally from me? Opinion. I, I am absolutely, um, you see, we live both in America and in the UK. Um, we live in a blame culture. When something happens, the natural reaction is let's blame this person, that person, this organization and that organization, this body and that body. That's too simple. Um, you know, times have changed. We cannot, unfortunately, people are radicalized online. Everybody has computers. Everybody is constantly online. Um, terrorists know that. Uh, recruiters know that, you know, and uh, they know that they're very smart people. They get into people's heads. And unfortunately, you cannot police everybody's bedroom, full stop. People get radicalized in their bedrooms, in their own homes. How can you possibly police that? How can you possibly? And and also there might be people, you know, people have said, well, there's so many thousands of people under the radar. Why are they not scrutinized more? Well, you can't just um, arrest people because of a suspicion. There's got to be evidence. There just simply isn't enough manpower uh, there, and and also, as I said, people get radicalized in different ways. It's just impossible to police everything and everybody. And my my dissertation is about that the general public needs to not just be more more security conscious, but also share their own security with the government and the police and counterterrorism. It's a joint effort. The police, the, the police and counterterrorism and Government can do their bit, but we need to also stand up and take responsibility for our own security and and just become more security alert. And that's what my piece of work is about. Yeah, and and I would agree. And 
Before I start to um, close up our conversation, Dan, it's been really, um, really enjoyed talking to you. Uh, and hopefully we can talk more, more offline about some of this stuff as well. Trade some, trade some of my war stories. But there is, there's one question I want to ask you, and I want to do talk about your peace bears because I looked online last night oh, yeah. and then they're out of stock. I was like, I've, I've got to find out now. She's going to make some more. But so here's my question for you. And, and it's going to be a challenge, but you've got to remove the tragedy that happened um, surrounding your, your son. But if you look at you as a person from post-2017 to pre-2017, when you said pre-2017, you're an introvert, in your personality, which one do you prefer? I do you prefer, prefer the, the old you or the new you? Yeah. No, the new me, definitely. The new you. Um, I prefer who I am now because it's giving me the opportunity to um, to right a lot of wrong, if that makes sense. And it gives me the opportunity to actually um, make the government change the law. I've, since Martin died, lost all my sense of fear and shame. I don't care if I sit in front of a government minister. They're just people like me and, and I don't mind saying, you know, I, I sat, I remember sitting in front of a security minister in London last year before the lockdown. And at the end of the meeting, the, the minister said, is there anything else you'd like to say, Fegan? And I said, well, as you can see, I'm only small, I'm only five foot. But I said, there is a saying that if you think small is not effective, you have never been in bed with a mosquito. So I said, you see, I am the mosquito and I'll be buzzing around your head. I will not be going away. I'll be, I'll be buzzing around your head all the time. So I said, you may as well accept that Martin's law is going to be something I will pester you about. And he laughed and he said, look, I've got children who will eventually go to concerts. I want them to be safe. I prefer who well, I mean, you are, I mean, I didn't know you were five foot, but you are a formidable woman. I, I wouldn't I want to yeah. cross you in a bar or somewhere and it'd be like, yeah, but, but it's good, but you do need that. I mean, that's what I love to hear about your grit, determination, resilience is where it comes from, from you. So it was obviously always in there. You were just waiting for the right moment to unleash it. Um, fascinating. And so, so tell me a little yeah. bit about, um, you know, we've got to sort of start wrapping up, but tell me, tell my listeners about the, the peace bears then. And, and if you are still selling them, where, where they can find them, because I want one, but I, I looked on your website, you're out of stock. I I do still sell them and uh, I will be putting more online um, probably either tonight or tomorrow, definitely. Um, I knit them every day in court while I'm listening to the inquiry. They've allowed me my knitting needles in out of uh, for mental health purposes because they helped me cope with the inquiry. So the bears came about, um, obviously, as a therapist and coach, my ears are my working tools. And about five years ago, when Martin was still alive, I had, unbeknown to me, a medical emergency that I didn't realize was a medical emergency. I suddenly couldn't hear on my left ear and I should have been on steroids 24 hours after it happened. And I didn't get treatment until a month later. So I lost 60% of my hearing on my left side. And that really upset me and got me quite down. And then I thought, well, as a therapist, you always tell your clients, get creative when you feel down. It's really helpful. So I decided to get creative and started knitting my bears. But I had so many that eventually I started selling them online. And um, I also wrote a um, book 
And this is a story, a therapeutic short stories book for adults. Some of it is a bit naughty. Um, but there are basically 16 bears with mental health issues going from porn addiction to bereavement to anxiety to uh, seasonal affective disorder, all these different conditions people have, self-harm, anger. And I tell the story of them in, 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 in terms of bears um, and then how they resolve it. And it's actually a proper therapeutic uh, self-help book. It's just told through bears. And um, so I sell the bears, but when Martin died, the bears became, they, they gathered another uh, meaning. They became my peace bears because I realized that terrorism is born out of hate. And I, my way of countering that is by selling bears all over the world. And I use the money I earn from the bears for charity. I have supported many um, uh, therapeutic charities. And now I give the money to some of the families of the bereaved, the bereaved uh, from the attack. They've, some of them have set up charities. So I knit them for my own mental health but I also try and give back to the community. But they are a symbol of love and tolerance and kindness. This podcast isn't going to air for a few weeks, so I've got a head start on my listeners. <laughs> but I'm going to go on your website and, um, and, and get one. So I don't know if you've shipped to America, but I'll give you a UK address to yeah, send yeah, one, yeah. but I want a yeah. couple. Yeah. So tell, tell my listeners, and Vegan, as we wrap up, you're doing incredible work to honor your son that was killed at the hands of terrorists. What can my listeners and viewers of the podcast do to help support your mission? What can they do to help you? Um, follow me on Twitter because uh, Twitter is, uh, I mean, I tweet about all sorts of stuff. I tweet about bears. I tweet about sometimes funny things, but mostly I tweet about Martin's law and serious things on terrorism and uh, tolerance and kindness. So, um, the more people who, who follow me on Twitter, the better, because that way they can help me spread that message of tolerance and um, buy some bears when they are available. Generally, just um, become open-minded to kindness and tolerance, basically. Forgiveness is, is something that a lot of people struggle with, so try and become more forgiving. Well, Vegan, um, it's been an honour and a privilege to sit down and talk to you today. I've been challenged i've learned so much and just to be around someone that has such compassion such empathy a desire to understand i'm really grateful for your for your time and, and like i said nothing um as you know is going to bring your your son back but yeah. i'm sure that he is deeply honored as to how you are serving his his memory so vegan murray thank you for joining me on the Herb became podcast thank you for joining the who i became podcast to help spread this inspiring story, be sure to share it with your friends, hit the like button, and of course, subscribe to our channel so you won't miss out on any future episodes. We'd also love to hear how this story impacted you, so leave us a comment on whatever platform you're watching us from. To learn more about this episode, our guests, or Simon, head over to simonosimo slash podcast and sign up to receive the latest information delivered straight to your inbox. Once again, thank you for joining us for the Who I Became podcast.